Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, New Zealand's first ever Minister for Mental Health. Should we as New Zealanders expect the same level of services for mental health as we do for physical? Of course, and this has been part of the problem, that mental health has been the poor second cousin to physical health. We will look at the demise of the Māori Health Authority and what would the end of News Hub mean for the broader state of news journalism? I don't think that Warner Brothers Discovery cares about the New Zealand market and it most certainly doesn't care about the news market in New Zealand. We'll have that interview for you shortly. But first, four years since Jacinda Ardern's government announced $1.9 billion to improve mental health services, many in the sector say there have been few, if any, improvements. But now, for the first time ever, New Zealand has a dedicated Minister for Mental Health. And Matt Ducey comes to the role after a career in the mental health sector. Well, in my late teens, I had a bad car accident when I was thrown out of the back windscreen of a car as it flipped in on end. I actually ended up receiving head injuries. I was in hospital for a number of weeks. And what was really interesting, going back to sort of middle to late 80s, when I was discharged, I had a number of follow-up appointments but they were all about broken bones. No one ever said to me, you've had a hell of a knock to your head, you should watch out. And so what happened over a course of a number of years, now I know I had things like anxiety and depression, but I, I, I struggled to, to concentrate. Uh, I got frustrated very easy. I was getting angry, more and more isolated. Thing, things weren't going well. And everyone said, look, you need to get some support around this. And so I was a, a, a young bloke and I sort of refused to do that for a while, but it got to a point where I, I needed to get some help and I reached out. And, and, and I always say that was like the light bulb moment. Um, you know, n not only did I get the support that helps me today uh, form a better relationship with my mental health, but I thought to myself, I, I want to do uh, what that person does. Uh, so I trained in counselling psychology worked in New Zealand, and then I went over for my OE and was lucky enough to work for the NHS mm -hmm. uh, and did a number of years with the NHS when I was over there, primarily in the East End, um, which was a real blessing uh, because it's quite a, a hard end of the spectrum in East End, but it was a place I got a lot of experience, real rich experience from. Why does New Zealand need a dedicated Minister for Mental Health? Yeah, I think that's a very good question because the first thing I'd say is just getting a job doesn't make a difference. You know, clearly I'll be measured about what I do in this job to make a difference. But look, when we went into opposition, uh, I remember talking to Bill English, our leader at the time, saying, I think it's time we have a standalone mental health minister. Health ministers of all colours are going to get very distracted by physical health. Mental health's always been a poor second cousin to physical health. And I look around the world and, and some examples of what other jurisdictions had done is create a mental health ministry. I didn't think we need to do that. It would silo mental health more. But there's a role actually that Australia introduced a few years ago, I think it's been quite successful a standalone mental health minister that not only works within health but goes into the other government departments. What are we doing about better mental health and education and corrections and uh, social development and housing and so on and so on. How many of the actions in your government's 100-day plan were focused on mental health? Yeah, there's nothing actually in that 100-day plan for any of my portfolios, mental health, ACC, tourism and youth. But is mental health not, 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 doesn't warrant priority status? Yeah, well, I think it, it, it sends a very clear signal 
that it is a priority well, when, you well, when you establish New Zealand's first mental health minister. But not when you have it in the 100-day plan. So my first 100 days that I wanted to look at was setting up the role and then going into government, I wanted to look under the hood. I want to know where that $1.9 billion went. I want to know where we spent the $2.5 billion ring fence funding every year for mental health and addictions. I wanted to work with officials to understand why did the last government have the implementation issues that they did. Mm. And then also I wanted to understand what is the current capacity and capability of the sector to stand up services and programmes to respond to the growing needs. So that's what I've been doing in the first 100 days. Let's, let's start with some real basics then. What publicly funded mental health services should New Zealanders expect under your government? Yeah, well I think what we should have is a primary mental health care system that people should be able to access uh, in, in pretty much real time, in a matter of a week. And then followed from that, those who need a specialist service they should be able to access that within a number of weeks as well. What I also think we need to do though, which is the real crux of the issue in, in New Zealand, we have some real constraints about our publicly funded mental health system. I think we need to look about how we get some of that money out of Wellington into the grassroots organisations who are already delivering and when I visited them they tell me they're prime for growth. They've got a workforce separate to the publicly funded mental health system. Right. And we can offset some of that demand by utilising our NGO and community sector. So, so, so in essence we would have a community level support, then a primary level support and an acute or specialist level support. Very much so. so. So should we as New Zealanders expect the same level of services for mental health as we do for physical health? Of course. And this has been part of the problem that mental health has been the poor second cousin to physical health. And I'll tell you what, the addiction sector will tell you they've been a poor cousin to mental health as well. We've got to elevate that because look what happens at the moment around uh, mental health crisis call-outs. If you have a physical health crisis, you call 111, you get a health response. When you call 111 with a mental health crisis, you get a criminal justice response. So actually we've got to respond differently to mental health, ensuring we get people a mental health response. And unfortunately that has been lacking. Are you concerned that police aren't going to be responding to those calls? Well, what I can say is uh, I'm thankful for the police to the level of response they give. We don't want to end up like in the UK where the Metropolitan Police have issued an instruction that very soon they won't be going out to mental health but crisis But police have said they are going to be responding to those calls less than in the past. That, yeah. That's one of their new and, focuses. And that's a piece of work that we have got at the moment to look at what I call the crisis pathway. What are we doing within the dispatch centre? I've said quite openly maybe it's a time we have a fourth option. You call up, you get ambulance, police, fire or mental health. I think we need to triage better there. And then based on the level of risk to that person and people around them, is it a police and a mental health response? Maybe it's a mental health response and then where do we take them? Is it solely the ED or Australia is doing a lot better in respite centres in the community? Some, something we also need to do in New Zealand, I think, Jack, is not all distress is a mental illness. So some of those calls mm. for mental distress 
uh, is not about a mental illness either. So we th need to think about how we respond to distress in New Zealand as well. I'll talk about that distinction a little bit more in a moment. Workforce shortages are massive, yes. as you know, across the mental health sector. We have a shortage of nurses, a shortage, a shortage of psychiatrists, and of course of psychologists as well. In fact, by some estimates, we are 1,000 psychologists short in New Zealand. In your election manifesto, you promised to double the number of clinical psychologists being trained in New Zealand to 80 a year. Yeah. How many were trained last year? I think we're about 50 or 60. What's really concerning to me at the moment, Jack, is that I'm trying to understand the workforce modelling, and it'd be fair to say it's not actually there yet, but something I was able to get um, last in the last couple of weeks is that the data is showing we are starting to move up to 70 or 80 psychologists under the new clinical internship hub model. I mean, the, the Ministry of Health made it clear that, that the 80 that you want to see being trained were trained last year. Yeah. So you said you yeah. wanted to double the number of clinical yeah. psychologists yeah. being trained from 40 to 80. Yeah. They say we're already at 80. Yeah, but the intent was to double the amount of psychologists through internship hubs. But I think the real point here, Jack, is that the data I've had recently, the modelling, mm has said we need to train 350 psychologists a year to meet the vacancy rates of Health New Zealand. Now, at the moment, we are only training up to 80. So my, my point being is that, yes, we can grow the clinical internship placements, which we will do, but actually, we've actually got to do things differently so because the, the if number, we need the three number of internship placements, sorry to interrupt you, has more than quadrupled since 2019 at the moment. Yes. So, so in terms of actual students, clinical psychology students in final year, what, what will we expect under your government? Are you going to double it from 80 where it's at at the moment to 160? Well, well, well I'll tell you what we're looking at at the moment is there's about five to 600 people mm. who graduate at an undergraduate psychology level now, when they don't get one of those 50 or 80 psychology internship um, placements, they disappear. What I want to know is that whether we can establish, as the UK has done, a new registered pathway for assistant psychologists that we can then use that five to 600 people who graduate. Right. I've already visited a couple of universities uh, it's been a positive conversation. So, yep, I want to grow the number of clinical internship placements, but I'll be very clear, if the modelling I've received shows we need 350 a year, I think we need to do different pathways as well. So, so how many will you fund? This is from Health New Zealand. Further increases to the psychology workforce will require university programmes to significantly increase their intake and an associated funding increase. Yes. So How there are going to be announcements I'm going to be making soon, what we are going to be doing in the workforce, specifically psychology, but let's be very clear, as the Auditor-General in his report, announced only two weeks ago, said we are desperately in the need of a workforce plan. Mm. We don't have a workforce plan for mental health. You mentioned your interest in mental health, if you like, was sparked in the wake of a car accident, which contributed to anxiety and depression. Would seeing a psychologist for that be covered now under the current system? Probably not. Probably what you would get covered by now is going to an access and choice programme within the GP. But that would be something like that would be covered under ACC, except that ACC doesn't cover mental health, right? Yeah, there is the issue around that. But I just want to be, be very clear about my point is 
we're not, everyone who has some mental distress doesn't need to see a psychologist and a psychiatrist. There is a range of workforce out there and what also gets left, left out is our lived experience peer support workforce as well. You said at the start of this interview that mental health should be treated like physical health. So, should ACC cover mental health care? Well, I think that's an option we can explore. Should it? Um, uh, what's yeah, your position as Minister? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm seeking advice on that. I You're think seeking advice on whether ACC should cover mental health well, support? Well, I'm more specific seeking advice on the area around first responders and the issue for them around being exposed uh, to multiple events. So I'm asking about ACC though, someone who experiences a traumatic event, should they be supported for mental health support yeah, after I'm, that event? I'm, I'm keen to explore that, Jack. I'm, I'm new in role, I'm new as the ACC But you have been the opposition well. spokesperson for I, six years. No, 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 hold on. I wasn't the opposition spokesperson uh, for ACC. For mental so health you were though. Let's, let's be very clear about that as well. For, for mental health. Why is I Am Hope exempt from the usual service procurement processes. I think we all agree Mike King does an amazing job and, and I'm not disputing the services they provide, but yeah. why should that one organisation be exempt from those regular processes? Yeah, so in the coalition agreement we agreed to fund I Am Hope or Gumboot Friday by six million dollars. One of the reasons we decided to do that is the Gumboot Friday platform has over 400 mental health professionals uh, on that platform. They can take referrals for young people and be seen within 48 hours. Part of what this government's going to do is take some of the demand away from the public mental health system and ask the NGO and community service to pick that up. Now, not only do I think by giving them $6 million, they'll be able to obviously increase the number of young people they'll be seen, I'm very interested for those young people who are on a wait list for specialist services, whether some of those young people can be seen by Gumboot Friday to keep stable in that time. I was talking to uh, my counterpart in Australia yesterday afternoon, Minister Emma McBride, uh, and she's the mental health minister at a federal level. They have a similar issue about wait times for specialist uh, youth mental health services and are looking at how the community and NGO sector can complement that and that's what we're doing by funding Gumboot Friday. So, so I'm not disputing the work that Gumboot Friday does. Again, I think everyone can see it does some really, really valuable and important yeah. work. But it doesn't answer my question. Why should it be exempt from regular procurement processes? Well, I'm not sure it is exempt. I mean, so so we... what, are, what, other, what other mental health service providers are you funding through the coalition agreement that aren't going through another yeah, procurement well, I, process? I, as, as an example, what happened under the last government... Uh, I, I would what use, about your government? I, I know, and I'll come back to that, but I would use a, a, an example of the picky pilot. That was directly funded by the last government as well for specifically the Wellington region. And is that, is that good policy making? To, 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 to pick and choose which organisations won't be subject to regular procurement? Yeah, we've got the funding to Gumboot Friday. Yeah, and I understand that. So yeah, is, that, is, that, yeah. is that good policy, to, to just pick and choose which organisations well, get the funding? I don't think anyone would disagree about funding Gumboot Friday and the response that they But they might make. disagree about the process, yeah, right? Yeah, but that, that was a decision we made in the coalition agreement. Mm. The second thing uh, I'd so, say... So, so again... 
I'm asking if it's good policy just to pick and choose which organisations are exempt from regular procurement. Well, I think that if you were saying is good policy getting money to the front line of that's, an organisation... That's not the question, that's not the question though, Minister. Yeah. Uh, the question is, is it good policy to pick and choose which organisations don't have to go through regular procurement? But, but also you're forgetting that we announced the Mental Health Innovation Fund, Jack. Minister, which was Minister can you just answer that, that one question? Is it, is it good policy to pick and choose for any government yeah. which organisations are exempt from regular procurement processes? Well, if it's a good policy to get $6 million uh, to Gumboot Friday, I'll say yes. The suicide rate for Māori men uh, between the ages of 15 and 24 is more than two times higher than non-Māori of the same age group. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, that concerns me. Um, and one of the most um, difficult part of the jobs is I um, meet a lot of people uh, who have either attempted suicide themselves uh, or have been bereaved by suicide. Um, and I think that we're going to have to clearly do a lot better in that space. When you look about Māori and the rate versus non-Māori, I think it's about 18 per 100,000 that commit suicide in New Zealand to a Māori. Non-Māori are about 10 per 100,000. Why do you think that well, is? Well, I think Māori are overrepresented in those statistics. I think through things like uh, poverty, uh, discrimination, uh, stigma. I'd even go as far as to say colonisation as well. And I think we have to be uh, open to, to actually understanding that uh, the experiences um, Māori uh, experience and the impacts that has clearly on our suicide rates. So what agency is responsible for overseeing the response to Māori suicide? Well, at the moment we've got the Suicide Prevention Office and I, I, I must say it's a sensitive area but actually uh, from the outside looking in I've been quite disappointed with the Suicide Prevention Office. I think uh, it hasn't had the leadership uh, that it should have had. Um, I don't think it's got the profile of actually directing what it needs to do. The Suicide Prevention Action Plan is up for review this year after five years. And I, I want to look at that. I want to understand the workforce issues within our suicide prevention work. Mm. But I also want to understand, again, how we can use our NGO and community sector. Because I'll give you a good example. Mm. Most people will connect with this example. The construction sector has the highest suicide rate out of any sector. Most people will know what mates in construction is. Mm. And that's how we will get that message out there. What about the Māori Health Authority? It's expanded. Māori suicide prevention from nine providers to 23 providers nationwide. Yes. So what official advice have you had about the impact of scrapping the Māori Health Authority on Māori suicide rates? So the Suicide Prevention Office was removed uh, from the Ministry of Health, or shifted into the Māori Health Authority. I haven't got any advice under that, other than to say I am a big supporter mm. of by Māori, for Māori services. Mm. I think it is about in suicide prevention devolution, local solutions for local needs. So, 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 so what advice have you had then about, about the impact of scrapping the Māori Health Authority, which, which is commissioning all of those services and is commissioning a lot in yes, the suicide but, but, space? But I think you're conflating two issues, Jack. On, on Māori the, suicide The, the scrapping rights. of the bureaucracy of the Māori Health Authority is different than the services we are putting those services back inside uh, 
one system, the health system. And so I'll tell all you of what, those services will continue to yes, be funded? Yes, very much so. And, 23. And, and I'll tell you what, we actually need to do more. Because when I meet iwi, and I was recently meeting Ngāte Hina uh, up in Waitangi when I was up there, they talk of stories when uh, the CAT teams are called for people and the CAT team isn't able to go out. And the iwi takes it upon themselves and said, actually, uh, we, we will go out. Mm. And they go out and see their people. That, that is what mental health is about. There'll be a lot of range of views about the centralisation approach of the health reforms. Mm. You could argue a hip replacement in Christchurch is the same as a hip replacement in Wellington. Mental health is completely different. Yeah. It's actually got to be localised. How we respond to suicide prevention where I am today in North Canterbury for middle-aged male dairy farmers will potentially be very different than young Māori in South Auckland. And so that's why this role is about bringing that focus and that detail to those issues. Matt Ducey. After the break, tourism pipped agriculture as our biggest export industry before the pandemic. Uh, new numbers suggest it's back on track. Kia ora, welcome back. Mental health, ACC, youth and tourism. As a first-time minister, Matt Ducey is juggling a lot of varied portfolios. And for the last part of our interview, I started by asking about drug harm and addiction. What drug causes the most harm in New Zealand? I'd have to say um, alcohol. If you would call that a drug, I, I would. Obviously, um, smoking certainly a as, drug. as yeah. well. <clears throat> yeah. so, so do you support greater restrictions on alcohol advertising and sponsorship? Um, well, I think, I actually, to be honest, I haven't really looked at it that much in detail. I think whether... I mean, addiction is a massive part of mental health. Yeah, yeah but I think sometimes the debate around um, alcohol or cannabis can get a bit binary about whether it's liberalised or the prohibition. The, the reality is, whatever the re regime is, people will still have problems with that substance. I was well, able well, to except work... The, except the, I mean, when was the last time you saw an ad for cannabis on television? Yeah, well, I mean, that's obvious why we don't have an ad for cannabis. No, but my point being... No, hang on, that's a, that's a really important point, though, isn't yes. it? I mean, the, the ministerial forum established under the previous national government was explicit in its advice. The number one, they th the number one policy they said we could introduce to reduce alcohol harm in New Zealand would be to introduce greater restrictions on sponsorship and advertising. And you, as the Minister for Mental Health, haven't given it much thought? Well, no, because A, a that, that is not my decision, and B, I would say it's more you about education. Yeah, but, but Jack, you, you're asking me the question, and what I'm saying to you is that you can go through the regime, I, I, I accept that, I'm, my own experience in working in alcohol and drug services. But actually, whatever the regime is, you are going to have a group of people who have problematic use. Mm -hmm. For me, that, that is about um, education, that's about building the skills within people, mm -hmm. and, and the support services for those who need to reach out as well. We talked at the start of this interview about the difference between mental distress and mental disorders. Yes. Should people with mental disorders be in prison? Uh, well, that's, that's a very good question. And I suppose, has someone committed a crime that uh, results in them going to prison? The answer is yes. And if their uh, mental disorder 
is a contributing factor in that crime, should they be in prison? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's a very interesting thing to explore. You'd ask yourself at the moment, are we screening or assessing people in prison? I would say not enough. And we've got to understand uh, how we understand the mental health issues this person has and how it contributes to the offending. So if you are saying the point of prison is to A, keep the public safe, but also use that opportunity to rehabilitate people, then yes, we should have good mental health and addiction services in there. Can you tell us how your vision for tourism in New Zealand differs from the current reality? From the current reality? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, what I would say to you is that it was very clear under Nicola Willis's announcement last year when she opened up the books, we've got years of deficits ahead of us. Um, so quite rightly, any government needs to cut its cloth, and that's what we're doing, like any family and business has done in the last few years. Mm. The other side of that equation is how do we then grow the economy? Tourism and internet hospitality is one of our biggest export earners. So what we want to do is grow tourism. Uh, and I'm really excited about the figures that were announced yesterday. It showed that uh, tourism had bounced back to our second biggest export earner. Uh, the data to March 2023 showed that uh, tourism expenditure was about $37 billion, only about $4 billion shy of the $41 billion it was at pre-COVID. So it shows that the tourists are coming back. And as I travel around the country as a new tourism and hospitality minister, it's really exciting, and I love meeting all the colourful characters, mm. uh, our tourism operators, and they're loving the ability to showcase New Zealand to our international visitors. So back to my question, how, how would your vision for tourism in New Zealand change things? What would you do differently? Well, at the moment, what we want to do is grow tourism. We want to... How much bigger should it be, do you think? Well, that, that's not for me uh, to say. I mean, Could it be New Zealand's largest export industry again? Well, potentially. But when I say I want to grow the value of tourism, I want to do it with social licence. I want communities mm. to be part of that discussion. I'm really encouraged at the moment of the structure we have in New Zealand. We have our regional tourism organisations who put together what's called destination management plans. That's part of communities deciding, do they want tourism? What attractions do they have to offer? And what levels do they want coming in? So look, it's not for me, out of the beehive, to tell areas what they want to do in tourism, other than I think a government's role is to create the settings that tourism operators can grow, invest another dollar, employ another person, and then get out of their way so they can go on and do so, what so they need to do. So is it good for productivity, for, for growing wage rises, that kind of thing? Yeah, when you look at hospitality and tourism, mm. it's a way of bringing jobs into some of the smaller rural towns. Mm. But is it good for uh, productivity? Regionals as well, when you think about it, it is about jobs and incomes there, Jack. And that's what tourism can do. It can be a real economic catalyst for rural and regional New Zealand. MB is of the view that unmanaged tourism growth over the medium to long term is unlikely to tackle New Zealand's broader economic challenges, including productivity and lifting per capita incomes. Yeah, That's I, from your, your briefing as the new I know, minister. but I'll slightly push back on that, Jack. What I'm actually seeing from our tourist operators, and I think really when you look at the value of tourism to our GDP, the latest stats showed about $3.7 billion. Mm. I think we should be patting our tourism operators on the back and thanking them for being part of our economic recovery. And what they're telling me is that they are looking 
at their um, products now, at their services, mm. and looking at um, higher value of what they are achieving with the international visitors. I think that will drive productivity, and I think that should be encouraged. And when you, for me, when you look at tourism, it's largely private capital. We should be creating the settings that our tourist operators can go on and flourish, and that's what I think the role of government is. That's Matt Ducey. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please kōrero mai. These are our main platforms. You can flick us an email, you can find us on X or on Facebook. Next, we will ask if a Labour government in the future will revive the Māori Health Authority. And then, what News Hub's proposed closure says about the state of news media in New Zealand. We can choose form or function. I choose function. We can choose activism, activism or actions. I choose actions. We can choose outrage or outcomes. I choose outcomes. I commend this bill to the House. <laughs> and just like that, come June 30th, two years since its launch, Te Aka the Māori Health Authority, will be no more. In a country where Māori life expectancy is seven years shorter than that of non-Māori, supporters saw Te Aka as a step towards closing the gap. But the government says a separate agency is divisive and unnecessary. Labour's Associate Health spokesperson is Penny Henare. Uh, hugely disappointing. Uh, it was a once-in-a-generation opportunity to change the health sector for the future. Um, but, you know, I accept the government's done what they've done and our job now is, as Mr Ritti has said, that he wants to see outcomes, well, we'll be holding to account. Let's talk to outcomes a little bit. What, what health outcome resulting from the Māori Health Authority Te Akawhai order are you most proud of? Uh, there are two that are... Uh, the first one is that because of the direct work of Te Akawhai order, there was just under a 16% increase in Māori tamariki going from school into the tertiary sector to work in health, health roles. I think that's a really easy way to measure uh, some of the impact that they've had in the two years or 18 months and, that they've had. And for people who aren't familiar with that, how did Te Aka facilitate that change? Yeah, it's supported through a kaupapa called Puhoro, which is to focus on STEM subjects for Māori and Pacific Tamariki uh, at college. And uh, we can hand on heart say directly because of our involvement with Te Aka through that particular kaupapa, we saw a reinvigorated uh, sense amongst our young people to get involved in health where we need workers. And so is Puhoro dead? No, Puhoro's still going. Right. There's, there's still a little bit more putia in their tank uh, to right. allow it to continue to do its work. So, And will it continue to be funded under Health New Zealand? Uh, that's what we'll be pushing uh, Health New Zealand and uh, even uh, Ministry of Education to make sure that we can do that. It's... So even though the Māori Health Authority, for this example, the Māori Health Authority has been scrapped, the programme that was facilitated through the Māori Health Authority may still receive putia, which may still allow Māori students to enter those STEM subjects. Yes, that's, that's my understanding, and certainly if anything changes in the near mm. future, we'll be challenging that because it's so successful. Right. What was the other example? Uh, the other example is uh, the Māori Health Provider Network across the country reported uh, an uptick of 12% in their CPI, which is something that hasn't happened for the Māori health sector in just over two decades. Sorry, what does that mean? What uh, so it's an increase in, uh, in the ability for them to be able to provide more services, in particular around some of their capital assets. For those who have been to some doctors or Māori health providers, you know, they're delivered out of 
pretty pretty average buildings. Mm. Uh, we learned through COVID that the job actually was to get out in the community. So there was significant support to help them with mobile clinics, etc., mm. to make sure that we can service our community. And that was something that hasn't been seen in the Māori health sector for just over 20 years. Again, could that continue to be funded under Health New Zealand? Well, that's the hope. That's the hope. And as I said, Dr Reti's keen on outcomes and we're mm. keen to see outcomes too. So our job will be to make sure that uh, the baby isn't thrown out with the bathwater in this instance and we have the chance to continue to drive for better so health that's outcomes. That's the kind of fundamental point with all of this, right? And this would be the, the government's argument. They would say, OK, the, the, the over-branching um, organisation, if you like, that is uh, Te Ako Order, the Māori Health Authority, is gone, but actually all of these services are going to continue to be funded through Health New Zealand. So what's the big deal? Uh, so one of the big roles of Te Ako Order was to hold Health New Zealand Te Whatu Order to account. What we know is Māori Health uh, sector looks like Te Ako Order and the Māori Health Provider Network, but for most Māori, mm. the first time they go to the doctor is when they go to the emergency ward mm. or they've desperately needed um, help with their heart, etc. And usually by then it's too late. Um, so Te Ako Order, one of their key roles was to hold uh, Fatu Order to account, but also to be able to be part of the planning for future generational health in New Zealand. And what we saw during the week was a repeal that took out the Māori Health Authority's work in supporting New Zealand to plan for our health mm. outcomes. In terms of the big picture, all we really have to assess at this stage when it comes to Te Ako Order's effectiveness, outside of individual examples and anecdotes and stuff, was that official report by the Hauora Māori Advisory Committee. Now, yes. you commissioned that report, right? Correct. Now, let's be clear, the report was commissioned in, in the very early days Correct. of Te Ako Order existing. But nonetheless, mm. it was scathing. Uh, quote, the Māori Health Authority's inability to put in place the necessary level of capability and capacity to progress its key functions has hampered its performance. Do you accept Te Akawhaiwara fell short of its stated goals? Uh, when we did the review, it was clear that when you go, uh, undertake such fundamental shift and change, it's important you get it right, which is why we did the review, mm. uh, so that where we could identify early where there are challenges, how do we change that and influence it for the better so that we do get to where we want to go? I acknowledge, though, that in the health sector in particular, finding capability and capacity was just extremely difficult after COVID-19. A white-hot labour market, mm -hmm. uh, and plus, uh, you know, the health workers who were burnt out, effectively. Uh, so we, uh, there was a challenge there. I, I hand on heart admit that. Mm. Um, but as I've always maintained, Te Akawhaiora was a generational change. The, the, the thing was that, that that report made clear that some of the fundamental responsibilities of Te Akawhaiora were not being met. Um, yeah, I mean, arguably the commissioning of services, right, that you just referenced before, was the single most important mm. function of the agency. Quote, this is an area of significant concern. Commissioning activity in Māori provider service provision is tracking behind government commitments. Yeah, so um, commissioning is important, and as a former minister of Whānau Water, commissioning works mm. through Whānau Water. The intention here, which is why I'm really keen to see what Dr Reti does, is he's keeping the Iwi Māori partnership boards mm. that we created with Te Ora. The hope was that we could commission through Iwi Māori partnership boards at a locality, uh, which is what Dr Reti is talking about today. Uh, and, you know... Uh, building those were, was difficult. But, I mean, what does that say about the agency and, and, and the 
capacity for the agency to actually affect change? If early on it couldn't even commission services? Uh, it, it started commissioning services. But it fell short of the budget. You gave it money and they couldn't even spend it. That's right. Um, but it started commissioning services and I'm not saying that it was a case of uh, once we hit the hit mm. the green button everything was A-OK. -okay. That's why we did the review. Mm. So that it could be better, it could be stronger did, and its foundation set. Did, did the agency prioritise hiring Māori people over people with relevant skills? Uh, no, that's not my understanding. When I spoke with uh, uh, the chief executive, Viriana Manuel, at the time, mm. uh, and I met with a number of the staff, it was the person for the job. Mm. And as I said, the, the hurdles were a white-hot labour market and a very, mm. very tired, fatigued sector. It was sector. the person for the job. This is a line from that same report that you commissioned. Discretionary choices made by the board and executive have occasionally detracted from Te Akafaora's delivery of its core functions. A key example related to staff transfers, whereby the Te Akafaora prime focus was on acquiring Māori personnel instead of staff with the necessary skills and experience, e.g. commissioning and contract management. There was a large number of staff uh, that came over from Te Whātuwara and other functions within mm. the health sector, DHBs, mm. for example, and... We were quite clear, though, that it had to be the best person but for the job. But that's not what happened, though, right? Look, that's why we had to set do, the so foundation you, I asked you before if, if, if people were, were hired because they were Māori rather than because they had the relevant skills, and you said that didn't happen, but the report says it did. Well, our employment, so laws, the are, truth? Our employment laws are quite clear. You can't discriminate when you hire. So I'm more than confident when I spoke with the chief executive uh, that the people with the right skills were sought after and where we could, we'd appoint them. So you reject the findings of the report that you commissioned? It certainly wasn't my experience when I worked and met with the staff. That, that report, the Hauora Māori Advisory Committee has people like uh, Parikafia McLean, mm, Dr Materi Harwood, Dr Jim Mather, Rahui Papa, Ta Mark Solomon. Mm. You're saying you reject that point? I certainly do. The political nature of the agency was super relevant from the word go, right? Yeah. Um, anyone with, I think, a scintilla of political nous mm. could see that, rightly or wrongly, Te Akafai Order had a very, very short window within which to prove the kinds of change that it might affect for Te Iwi Māori. Mm. If the agency was getting basic stuff wrong and not commissioning, even with the tens of millions of dollars that you'd put aside to it, why should we believe that they did have the capacity to affect longer-term change? Uh, when we set up, when Tafano Ora was set up under the national government of its day, and then me having served as minister for six years, it took a full, close to a decade to fully get those functions up and running mm. as we see it and how successful it is today. I was under no illusion that it was going to be a difficult uh, task for Te Akafaiora, uh, but as we've always maintained throughout the health reform, it was a once-in-a-generational change. Yes, we were hampered by COVID-19. Mm. The case was built off the health and disability report. We campaigned on it going into mm. 2020, and we knew that we had to get the work done and that they had to get it right, which is why the review was important. Do you reckon there's anything you could have done as the Associate Minister to better future-proof the organisation? Oh, look, I think we... You know, if, if hindsight's a wonderful thing, but if we were to perhaps have driven it even harder, um, who knows, it might have... What does that mean have, in so, practice? Well, I mean, a big part about the Māori Health Authority and for those who have followed its journey, uh, even before uh, 18 months, two years ago, uh, they all know that 
the hope was and the desire was to have independence there. Mm. But of course, we're talking about taxpayer dollars. So we had to make sure that it was within the system where we could continue to monitor uh, and account for those dollars and get the outcomes that we want. Um, if there was something that we could have done better, of course, it would be to drive it even harder. But as I said, the review was fundamental mm. to get the foundation right. But driving even harder, just to, uh, what does that mean in practice? Yeah, look, um, on the ground, it looks like just far greater um, hands-on with respect to our Māori health providers and the work that we get. Dr Reti acknowledged in our debate during the week that uh, what we all know after COVID-19 is immunisation rates right across the country yeah. for Māori and Pacific kids is so low. Um, we, we, we set some targets, we set some funding, um, but, you know, like we did with COVID, sometimes you've literally just got to stand right over their shoulder and make sure they're getting the work done. That's how we drove the vaccination. Right yeah, now. right. So, so, so you, as you say, Dr Diti says judge us by outcomes rather than inputs. Mm. Is there any programme or, or piece of work that was being driven by Te Akawhai Order that in your knowledge, will not continue now that it's being moved to Health New Zealand? Uh, so some of the um, Iwi Māori Partnership Boards, because they were important as part of locality planning, right. instead of the broken DHB model we had, we mm. looked towards localities. Uh, the Minister made it clear in his debate that localities have been suspended for now, which begs the question, then, what's the purpose of holding on to the Iwi Māori Partnership Board mm. if they're not part of the health environment in that region? And that's the challenge that uh, I put to the Minister, and we look forward to holding him to account. In terms of actual services, though, is there any service that has been cut, to the best of your knowledge? Well, the Māori Health Provider Network has always been there. That's mm. been long before Te Akawhaiora. The job was to continue to support it and mm. grow it into the future. Um, right now, uh, the Minister hasn't indicated any cut. Uh, and the other point, though... And, and says, to be fair, that, that, that money will dedicated to Māori services will remain dedicated to Māori services at this stage. That's right. And, and the bill doesn't come into force till June 30, right. which is why we press the government on... The so rush. the proof of the pudding is in the eating, I suppose, is, is my point. If, if the, there was concern in any quarters that, that services improving the health outcomes for Tiwi Māori were going to be cut, then mm. that, that would be worthy of your attention. Would a Labour government in the future reinstate the Māori Health Authority? Uh, our leader, Chris Hipkins, was asked that very question in Waitangi on the marae uh, and committed to... Mm. to reinstating it. There was a clear case made for it in the Health and Disability Review. All the evidence stacks up, uh, and he made a clear commitment then. But, of course, we've got a job to do over the coming two and a half years, not just to hold the government to account, uh, but also to to do the policy planning required as we build for the 2026 election. Is there any other area of public services, education, for example, that mm. you think would warrant having a similar organisation or authority? Uh, not from my view at the moment, and we were quite deliberate with health. Yeah. That if we could get it right in health, perhaps maybe there's a case for it elsewhere, but certainly right now, in my view, uh, and given now that it's been uh, disposed of, uh, well, it's almost back to the drawing board. Mm. How many conversations are being held within the Labour Māori caucus at the moment as to a strategy for winning back some of those Māori seats in the next election? Yeah, look, um, we've got a planning day uh, coming up very soon as a caucus. The Māori caucus, in particular the likes of our senior members, we've lost a few. Mm. Uh, but with myself, uh, Willie Jackson and others, we are uh, every week sitting down and strategising not just about the election, but just to continue to support mm. our people. Uh, our people are feeling under attack right now, uh, and it's our job to make sure that we can support them through this. Personally, do people hit you up and ask you if you want to be party leader? 
<laughs> Look, I've always made it clear I, I support Chris Hipkins. He's, he's very good. That um, wasn't my question, though. Do, do people hit you up and ask you? Yeah, people do ask me. How, um, how often? Uh, I don't know. Sort of maybe every once a week or twice a week, maybe. Uh, a lot of fun. Quite often, eh? <laughs> a lot of fun. Uh, but look, I appreciate. It. I've been in politics now for coming up ten years. Mm. I consider myself a senior member of the Labour Party. Um, but as I've always maintained, I support Chris Hipkins. We've got a lot of work to do mm. as a party, and I look forward to doing. If he that. didn't want to stick around, is it something that you would entertain? Look. Uh, that's entirely up to him on his choice for me. Mm. Obviously, I mean, if he didn't want to stick around. Yeah, for me, look, I'm, I, I, like I say, I consider myself a senior leader in our team and uh, I'll be there to play my part. That was Penny Hienari. So, you know, as well as watching our show on TVNZ+, you can also find all of our interviews on YouTube. Just search NZQ&A and we will pop right up. After the break, as a global media giant proposes closing down a significant local news outlet, will the government decide to step in to try and prop up the broader industry? There are now multiple cats among the pigeons as the government considers submissions on the Fair News Digital Bargaining Bill, which would force Meta and Google to pay local news producers. On Friday, Meta announced it would not be renewing its deals under similar legislation in Australia and will not be paying for news anywhere worldwide. And with the proposal from Warner Brothers Discovery, which would close News Hub news operations, news producers here face an uncertain future. Peter Bale is a journalist and former media executive. I asked him about the News Hub announcement. Well, I think there's a, there's a hideous inevitability about it. Um, I don't think that Warner Brothers Discovery cares about the New Zealand market, and it most certainly doesn't care about the news market in New Zealand. It has enormous implications, of course. Um, it's interesting, I think Poland is the only country, as far as I know, where Warner Brothers Discovery has anything other than uh, any news operation other than CNN. So I think it was an inevitability, mm. um, but that doesn't mean that the loss of News Hub isn't both important, not just to journalists, because we can be a bit kind of uh, self-regarding about this, but it is important about the diversity of New Zealand media and um, also the advertising market. What, what does it say about the, the role that television use, and I use that term television mm. in the linear sense, what does it say about the role of that in our society today relative to 15 or 20 years ago? Well, having lived overseas a lot and come back to New Zealand um, relatively recently and seen the extraordinary trust that the six o'clock mm. news on TV and Z commands. It is a remarkable and an unusual market in that regard in that that six o'clock bulletin is still a kind of point of um, uh, point of interest for the community. Yeah. It is a trusted brand. It does it does its job very, very well. And I think that the, the 5.30 show on News Hub did very well. News Hub Nation, uh, like your show, yeah. the one we're on now, uh, was one of the few kind of weekly points where you take uh, the true economic, business, government concerns of the country and actually have a good conversation about them. I mm. mean, we used to have that with Paul Holmes and others over the years. Um, we've kind of lost that daily examination um, of, of what's going on in politics, and I think that's a great pity. So anything that detracts from that and detracts from the diverse voices or the diversity of voices... I mean, uh, News Hub uh, was punchy 
you know, was was yep. was a little bit raw and ready sometimes, um, you know, and had a different voice. And that's that's a great pity that's not going to be there, uh, or appears not going to be there. Th that's right. It's a proposal at this stage, but mm. I think we can well, read think into that. Let's, you know, the proposals are there because they have, um, you know, human resource consultations that are required. Yeah. I, I do think there are some interesting ideas there. Slimming it down. Mark Jennings, the former head of um, TV and TV3 News, has a has some views about it. Mm -hmm. I have some opinions about it, which is that there, if I were Warner and I wanted to resurrect some. Uh, public faith in this or public respect in this, I might consider ways of deploying the CNN brand here. I mean, they have a number of joint ventures in countries around the world, the Czech Republic, um, right. uh, for example, Greece. Um, you could do something with that, and I, I think that would be really interesting, but I, I doubt that that's where they're thinking at the moment. Yeah, I mean, TVNZ posted a significant half-year loss this week. So to what extent do you think the News Hub proposal is a canary in the coal mine of sorts for the wider news industry? I, I think it is. Well, it's a bit more than a canary, actually. It's slightly, it's slightly more ill than... than yeah. it's, a bigger, it's a bigger loss than a canary. The, the news industry is facing a number of crises, and, and some of them are a little bit different. I mean, both Television New Zealand and... Um, TV3 News Hub have the same problem with the extortionate cost of distributing linear broadcasting mm -hmm. over New Zealand. Transmission New costs. Yeah. yeah. If the government were to remove the transmission costs from Cordia, which is a, a properly state-owned um, vendor, um, then I think that would help immensely. And I've, I've had that feedback from both TV3 and from... Um, from uh, TVNZ. TVNZ for a project that I'm doing with um, Sir Peter Gluckman at um, Koi2 about this, because the, the loss of these voices um, really damages potentially the democratic fabric mm. of New Zealand as well as the media fabric. I mean, they, they kind of interact, and we, we in journalism can be a little bit too precious about that sometimes. But, you know, we want diverse voices. We want voices that reflect New Zealand as, as it is now, not necessarily as mm. it was. And so any loss is difficult. But television is in a very difficult position. I mean, uh, com commercial, commercial operators often say that um, TVNZ and RNZ are their two biggest competitors, in a sense, and in a way they are. We have TVNZ as a really effective public broadcaster, not a state broadcaster, but it's a, an unusual public broadcaster in that it's commercially funded. You know, it has a model of... Hmm. Uh, but owned you know, by the government. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, well, on, but on the public's behalf. I, just, I think it's very important that hmm. we... Um, continue to be serious about that distinction about what public broadcasting is, public media is, and also public interest journalism, so that we um, realise that we're not all instruments of the state, no matter what. There seems to me to be a tension when it comes to those multiple crises that you mm -hmm. described in the news industry, if you like. One is that increasingly you hear news producers calling for some form of policy or government mm -hmm. intervention in order to sustain them. They say that the current economic models or the traditional economic models are no longer appropriate. However, over the last couple of years, we have seen significant disintegration when it comes to trust in mm -hmm. the news media. And I would have thought that any significant government policy comes at a cost of trust when yes. it comes in that news media. How, how, do you, how do you get past that? I think we have to... Um, think about in whose interest is it for, for trust in media to diminish. And very often that's politicians, particularly on the right wing, who, I mean, if you see, Donald Trump is the greatest exponent of this. Constant repetition of the idea of fake news does start to, to bite. Mm. Um, you know, the news media needs to work harder to defend that position of trust, to not be arrogant, to speak to its audiences more clearly. And one of the things I think in New Zealand is a, is a particular problem, but it's not just in New Zealand, is being clear about the distinction between opinion, commentary and hard facts. 
Um, and I think being more transparent, being clear about that is, is very important. But we, we should really think about in whose interest it is that, that the confidence in the media is diminished. And very often that's politicians. We saw the way also that the anti-vaccine, anti-vaccination movement um, uh, and various others kind of captured this during the during COVID. I think mm. my, my impression, having come back to New Zealand just as that started, was that in general the New Zealand media did an astounding job of, as, the, as did the government in a sense, of trying to explain a fast-moving problem that was immense, that was global, and that where there was a phenomenal amount of, amount of misinformation, disinformation, and just lack of information of real facts. And I thought they did a remarkable job. Mm. They possibly could have been a little harder in questioning some of the government's tactics, but the government barely knew what it was doing and was reacting mm. in real time as well. And we'll see some of that come out with the um, COVID inquiry, and I hope the COVID inquiry um, addresses the role of the media. But in general, I, I think that... You know, two things combined there. One was the spread of misinformation and disinformation about COVID itself, right. the idea that somehow the, the media was in cahoots with the government as opposed to trying to use its power to communicate the best information I had, I'd had, which I think was the truth. And then there was this fallout, the weaponization of the Public Interest Journalism Fund, mm. um, which has been used. And I'm really pleased that the News Publishers Association in New Zealand now has a, a much more bold... Uh, spokesman on this because the, the, the news industry did not defend itself adequately, I think, about the criticism of the PIJF. Mm. The government is currently considering the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, which is a bill that would essentially force the big digital players, Meta, which owns Facebook and Google, to pay local news producers for their content. Of course, similar legislation is already in place in Australia, Canada, places like that. On Friday, Meta announced they would no longer be doing those deals and paying local news producers in Australia and other countries worldwide. They're going to be losing the news mm -hmm. tab from Facebook. That combined with the News Hub news this week, how do you think the Minister is going to be approaching that? I, I think she's probably going to keep it quite separate. I think they are quite separate. They're sort of two halves of... They're sort of two halves of the same coin in that, in that Facebook and Google and the platforms do dominate digital advertising. There is a taxation mm. aspect of there. If you could come up with some kind of uh, digital advertising tax that was perhaps funnelling some money to, from that tax take towards, say, New Zealand like a, a broader approach, you could, I could which were the that. submissions uh, that, the, that were made for the bill. Yeah, but right. the idea of a link tax or that Facebook and Google somehow owe the news business a living, um, it's unpopular mm. with many of my colleagues and it's certainly unpopular with people I've worked with here, but I'm not sure that they do owe the news business a living. They have delivered billions of dollars of value towards the news business over mm. the years. And particularly in Facebook or Meta's case, the news industry has been rather disingenuous with this, that you've had... Um, you know, the, the chief executive of News Corporation and Mark Zuckerberg on the same platform saying, we've just got this amazing pact, it's going to have the news tab, all of this. And then you've got News, news Corp lobbying very, very hard in Australia for the, um, for the, for the uh, Australian regulations. And I, I'm, I'm aware that Mark Zuckerberg yeah. is really sick of that. From that point of view, it's just, it's a political burden and an aggravation he doesn't need. And I, I think that it's, it's really difficult. But, you know, we've, Facebook is... We have to be on that platform to some extent, but can Facebook really be responsible for what you or I post there as individuals or what businesses post there? The news, the news tab was a SOP to some extent to the news industry. It was a way in which uh, Facebook could quarantine an mm. agreed stream of news that it could have some uh, be responsible for and do transactions with the, me with the media businesses. And then we still... Uh, 
would then lobby our governments to get even more. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what Google Google has taken a slightly more subtle approach, been a little bit less aggressive, but you know, Google has done its own agreements with Business Desk, NZME, and a number of others in New mm -hmm. Zealand to put them into a kind of tab on the Google search service, um, specifically so that they can say, here we are helping you. That is Peter Bale. We're back after the break. Kua That is Q&A for this week. From all the team, thank you for watching. Hey, tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Here.